Spirit, you guys can grab a seat. How's everybody doing? Great, great. Kiddos, you guys are dismissed. Um, you can go learn about the Apostles' Creed in your environment. Uh, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open with me to Matthew chapter 16. Uh, if we haven't had a chance to meet yet, my name's Gabe. I'm one of the elders here. We're super grateful that you're here. Uh, we get to study Scripture together, grow in family together. We're just excited about that. Uh, I want to draw your attention to one quick thing, say one quick statement, and then we'll get into the sermon. Um, Daniel will say this or whoever's doing announcements at the end, but just to make sure, because we want to throw this out there as many times as possible. Next week, we will not be gathering here. We'll be meeting outside of Yahula Creek Park. Um, so we rent. Obviously, we don't own this building. They want to close on July 4th. So um, you guys know where the soccer field is with the track that goes around it at Yahula? Great. We're going to be meeting there. So we'll be on the back side of that in the shade, which is going to be great. Um, so kids can play on the grass. It'll just be a fun time. So next week, don't come here. Go there. If you do come here, we'll have someone parked here to point you there, but it'd just be easier if you just went there. Sound good? Not here, there. Second thing, uh, I really love you guys. Over this last like, couple weeks, uh, my schedule has freed up a little bit, spent a lot of time with a lot of people in this room. I'm just really grateful to be your pastor. I want you to know that. Uh, sometimes I do get threats. I got threatened this week to get Judy chopped by one of you, um, but I still love you, and I care for you, and ninja chop, that didn't happen, but I love you. Sound good? And that is it because I'm about to say some really hard things. We're going to worship together through the scriptures. I just wanted you to know how much I love you and care for you. Sound good? Great. You know when you're vulnerable and it doesn't get received, that makes you feel so great. Awesome. <laughs> Thank you. I'll just go back to being a jerk. Here we go. I'm going to be mean now. Matthew 16 is going to be mean. So, uh, just kidding. Matthew 16, week three of the Apostles' Creed. Uh, now, I know if this is your first week here, hear the Apostles' Creed, like what does this actually mean? Uh, all we're doing is simply this. We're taking the oldest creed, the oldest thing that men and women throughout church history have responded together, have recited together, and we're just working through it, not because the creed is authoritative to Scripture, uh, quite the opposite. We're doing this because it gives us a tangible way to understand what Scripture is and what it means for us. And so throughout history, we see creeds really do two things. The first primary thing is to correct error. So as we're teaching through this creed line by line, as we're using those truths to go back to biblical truth, uh, there, there might be some error in us, uh, but also we'll start to see the error across the world, of, and especially within Christendom, of the sins of just making theology about us. What, what it feels good about us. I'm going to take the biblical truths, and how does it relate to me? How do I make it feel good to me? And so one of the things that the creed does is helps us to correct error. The second thing it does is help us be formed as the people of God. It's something that we can remember, something that we can recite, uh, something that we can grow in. So Every week, I'm going to say these four things at the beginning, and then, Lord willing, say the four things at the end to kind of apply what we're learning. Uh, but for us, the four main reasons, the four main hopes of us going through the Apostles' Creed is simply first, to help us understand who God is. So we want to clearly understand the God of the Bible, the triune God, what that means, and have the knowledge then of who God is to grow in our knowledge. The second is it connects us as the family of God, both now 
and in the past to grow as the family of God. So it's going to draw us tighter when we can unite on these massive truths that we're going to see taught through the scripture, through the creed. It's just going to grow us tighter as a family, but it's also going to connect us to church history. We're going to understand some of our heroes in the faith and all that they went through for reciting, for believing, for obeying the truths that are in scriptures and in the creed. Third, it's going to give us an opportunity to teach. It's going to help us to grow confident in our teaching. And I don't mean from a pulpit, I don't mean from a stage or any kind of public forum, but leading our family and family worship, leading discipleship environments, leading just gospel conversations, the creed is going to allow us to have those and grow in our teaching ability. And then lastly, the creed is going to allow us to hold fast to what we believe, to hold fast, to hold firm. And this is just a massive importance right now in our culture uh, where it just seems like truth is changing every single day, right? The truth is, I mean, just rocketing into subjective truth. My truth is my truth. Your truth is your truth. But actually, if you don't believe in my truth, I'm going to cancel you for not believing my truth. So it's not actually my truth. It's all true. Like, What? It's just a nightmare. So this is going to allow us to hold firm in our faith to what the Bible is teaching us. And so I want to say over and over and over and over and over again, we are not putting the Apostles' Creed on a pedestal, right? We're not saying it's authoritative. We're using it to reflect back to Scripture. And the cheesy analogy that I'll probably say for the next 10 weeks is it's like the moon, right? The moon produces nothing of its own. It just reflects what it gets from the sun, and that's how we understand the Apostles' Creed. So um, a couple weeks ago when I opened this, I asked if anyone had it memorized. We had one that kind of flaked out, but I, I've got a present. I've got a prize. Does anyone have the Apostles' Creed memorized yet that can stand up and recite it? Go for it. So close. The Perkins are about to nail it out right here. Rob, you got a 20 I can borrow? <laughs> that was awesome. We'll get you. So what we want to do, because you called my bluff completely. I have nothing. So we'll, we'll, we'll reward you for that. Uh, so with that being said, that was awesome. Uh, we're just going to recite it together, right? We're just going to understand it together. Um, and here's where we are, just so you know where we're going. We're, we're circling in on, in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. So uh, let's read this together, understanding the context of where we are, and then we will dive in. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of
The Perkins were the only ones that kept reading while we were waiting for the screens to change, just so you know. So really, and if you notice this, the, the largest chunk of the Apostles' Creed is what we call Christology, the study of Christ. So we're going into this next really six weeks of working through the nature of the person and the work of Christ. And Al Mohler puts it this way, the largest portion of the creed is devoted to Christ. As a matter of fact, we should see the, the Apostles' Creed as a confession of Christ with an introduction and a conclusion. So it's really a confession of Christ with an introduction and a conclusion. And this makes a lot of sense when you think about this being written in the first two centuries. People were still trying to figure out who this Jesus guy was, right? I mean, he just turned the entire world upside down. Now his apostles are going crazy. There are people converting to the faith all over the place. Rome doesn't know what to do with them. And so they're trying the best they can to get this message out of who Jesus Christ actually was. There was no Twitter. There was no websites. So all it was was verbal affirmation. Here's who Jesus is. And we see this throughout with creeds, with um, catechisms. They're trying to fight and combat the culture of the day. So when you read, for instance, the Nicene Creed, um, this is around the time where they're starting to flesh out the role of the Holy Spirit in the Trinity. So the Nicene Creed is really going to go after the Holy Spirit when for us in the Apostles' Creed, the Holy Spirit is just one line. We'll get there when we get there. We've got to nail down who Jesus is first. And so all the time, creeds are pushing back against the culture of the day. And for us, we might think that Christology is pretty established here, that we don't really need to spend six weeks like the Apostles' Creed does on who Jesus is. But, but I, would, I would push back the opposite. I'll give you three main reasons why we must understand the person and work of Jesus Christ. But before I do, there's two outcomes for these next six weeks, this, this mini-series within a series. One, I really hope, here's my hope, I really hope that as we study and work through the person and work of Jesus Christ, it leads us to true, authentic worship. I don't want us to understand the facts of Jesus, to understand the historicity of Jesus, to understand all these big terms and things we're going to be working through. I want this to push us into true, authentic worship for who Jesus Christ is. And secondly, with that being said, I want us to understand the junk drawer that Jesus is in our day. I mean, Jesus is the catch-all person, and, and everyone is familiar with Jesus, but no one really knows what to do with Jesus. And here's what I mean. Here's, here's a few examples. According to a 2019 study, roughly 97% of evangelical Christians, us, affirm the doctrine of the Trinity— one true God and three persons, three distinct persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. That's great news. 97% of evangelicalism affirms the Trinity. But there's bad news. The same survey found that nearly 80% of those surveyed also believed Jesus to be a created being, apparently without realizing the contradiction. So 97% of evangelicals, of Christians, say, yes, we believe in a triune God, Father, Son, Spirit, three distinct persons, one God. But then 80% of those people say that God created Jesus. So Jesus is a created being, that he wasn't there in the beginning. So, so right out of the gate we go, well, then 80% of us have misunderstood the role, the person of Jesus. Is he actually a true deity or is he created. We'll get there in a second. But there's some problematic things. Another really growing trend, I don't know if you guys have seen this, but uh, red letter Christians, have you heard of this? 
So this, this is a massive growing trend that, that has really taken Jesus for what he's not. So, so I'll just, this is straight from their website. I'm not trying to um, exaggerate. By calling ourselves red-letter Christians, we refer to the fact that in many Bibles, the words of Jesus are printed in red. True? Are you all printed in red? All right. We, therefore, assert that we are committed first and foremost to doing what Jesus said. First and foremost to doing what Jesus said. So, basically, here's what it's saying. We're going to do what Jesus says and throw out the entirety of the rest of Scripture. So we're only going to do the words of Jesus, but, but we're going to deny the works of the Holy Spirit through the writing of the apostles and the rest of the New Testament. That we're, we're going to chalk up God in the Old Testament as a false idea that Moses and all these early guys were wrong about who they were. We're only going to do, say, believe what Jesus said. So when you look at the triune God, they've, they've belittled the work of God, the Father, and God, the Spirit, and they've elevated the work of Jesus Christ. And, and here's what it fleshes out for. I don't I don't mean to pick on this one, but this is just the easiest example. That Jesus never openly spoke about homosexuality. So, if Jesus never spoke about it, then it can't be a sin, or else Jesus would have addressed it. And, and they'll go so far to say, and this is where my ears just start bleeding. They'll go so far to say, but I know Paul talked about it. I just think Paul is wrong. Now listen, church, I will say some bold statements up here. But I don't know what to do with that one. We've elevated Jesus so much to the point that Paul was wrong, he was not inspired by Christ, that the entirety of the Old Testament is wrong, that God is not some mean, vengeful, he is this loving. And so what, what is happening is we've let the culture of the day dictate what we want to believe, and Jesus just conveniently fits that. That's quite opposite of what we're supposed to do as believers. Do we show grace? Yes. Do we show love? Yes. Did Jesus emulate God in the flesh 10,000%? But we have to take Jesus, God, the Spirit, all together. We have to take the hermeneutics of all of Scripture. What does the grand narrative of Scripture teach? Because Jesus is not contradicting that. He's affirming that, right? Jesus didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill the law. He's built into all of this. So we can't take these little things and then blow them up to like, well, Jesus didn't say, so therefore Paul is wrong and the Old Testament is wrong. And actually what Jesus did say in Matthew 19, 6 that is red letters, but that's a problem for them that they have to figure out on their own. And lastly, and I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, we have to understand in the South, when, Jesus, when I say Jesus is a junk drawer, that, that Jesus can be your Savior without your Lord. Right? I mean, we just took a poll. We went to Walmart just in the middle of a Tuesday afternoon and started polling people. Who do you think? Oh, yeah, Jesus is my Savior. Jesus is a good guy. I believe in Jesus. But when we start to look at the lordship, have we actually bowed down to Jesus as our Lord? That is almost never the case. And so we have this false idea that we can be homeboys with Jesus, that we can be friends with Jesus. We don't actually have to pursue Jesus, love Jesus, do anything with Jesus, bow down to the authority of Jesus. We can just be friends. One of the most manifest ways we see this take place is with the local church, Right? So I'm, I'm not throwing shade because you guys are here. You're awesome. But we have to do something with the fact that people will say, man, I love God and Jesus. I just don't love the church. When Scripture all throughout says Jesus is the groom, the church is his bride, you can't love the church. I'll say it this way. You're not going to come to my face and badmouth my wife in front of me. I'm going to punch you in the jaw. You're just not going to talk bad about her. I love that woman. 
but we think we can do that to Jesus? I love you, Jesus. I just don't love your bride. That ain't going to end well, my friends. But you see how slippery this slope gets where we misunderstand who Jesus is, and then that really starts to unravel everything about our worldview, the way we view Scripture, the way we view the local church. So we have to get down to this answer of who is Jesus. And and I love C.S. Lewis. I love C.S. Lewis. And he puts it masterfully. That when we look and we think about who Jesus is, we really have three options, right? That either Jesus was a liar, that he was just saying he was God, he was saying he was a prophet, he was saying all these things, but none of it was actually true, right? So, So Jesus was just a chronic liar that fooled everyone. Now, again, we'd have to do some work here, because why would Jesus' half-brother be thrown off the top of a temple to cover up his brother's lies? Why would 11 of the 12 disciples be martyred if they knew that Jesus was a liar? So either Jesus is a liar, or Jesus is a lunatic. He's just crazy, right? He was just a crazy man that was just spewing all this nonsense. He, He was just a lunatic, or... Jesus Christ actually was Lord. And it's got to be one of those three options. So we have no other choice. Jesus was either a liar, a lunatic, or a Lord. And so we understand all of this. Jesus gets to this question in Matthew 16. So let's look at Matthew 16. We're going to pick it up in verse 13. Matthew 16, verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they say, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others, Jeremiah, are one of the prophets. But he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, our Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. So we have this massive question that takes place. Jesus is asking, who does everyone else say that I am, but who do you say that I am? Now the backdrop of this story is just incredible to see because we see in verse 13, when they came into the district of Caesarea Philippi. Now this was about 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. If you have any church background, you've heard that word thrown around. Uh, But this place, Caesarea Philippi, had become the center of worship. And the center of worship had transitioned over time. So at first, it was a center of worship for Baal. And then it was a center of worship for the Greek god Pan. And now we see it as a center of worship for Caesar. As Rome was turning into this massive empire, now it was turning into a place of worship for Caesar. And so we see this taking place, Caesarea Philippi, the name actually just changed. And so in the backdrop where Caesar is Lord was commonly said and was going to become more commonly said, Jesus asked, in light of all of this around you, who do you say that I am? When culture is telling you to worship false gods, Who do you say that I am? 
When culture is telling you to bow down to Caesar, who do you say that I am? For us, when culture is telling you that you are your own God, that you can take care of your life, that you can control what you want to control, who do you say that Jesus is? This was of massive importance to Jesus. And so you see straight out of the gate when he asked this question, some were saying John the Baptist, others saying Elijah, others saying Jeremiah or one of the prophets, which makes sense because they understood the Old Testament. Most of them had the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint. They had read it. They had understand it. They had been told the stories of their ancestors. And so some of the things that Jesus was doing was very parallel to some of the prophets that they had read about and they had heard about in the Old Testament. Namely, that he speaks God's words and he works God's wonders. So what he's doing is very parallel to a prophet. And so for them, they're like, well, man, we just think you're a prophet. We think as a collective Jewish nation that, that you're the next John the Baptist, that you're the next major prophet that's going to be leading us to the Messiah. But in that moment, no one actually believed that he was the Christ. So we see that they were partly right. Yes, Jesus is a prophet, but at the same time, Jesus is king. Jesus is the Christ. Kent Hughes would put it this way. Jesus is viewed as a meek social reformer, a gentle moralist, a wise teacher, or a sympathetic healer. He was all of that, but not only that. He was a lamb, but also a lion. He was a prophet, but also the Christ, the lamb slain and the lion ruling king. I love that. So yes, he was the lamb, but he was also the lion. So then the question turns to, to, excuse me, to Simon Peter. Who do you say that I am? And for all the things that Simon Peter gets wrong, this one he gets right. It's an incredible answer. Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now it's very important to know how did Simon receive this information? How did Simon believe, how did he come to know this information when, when no one else around him seemed to notice that? How did Simon pick up on that he was actually the Christ and just not another prophet? And Jesus' words here are important because he calls him Simon Bar-Jonah, or basically Simon, son of Jonah. And then he goes on to say, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. So your dad didn't teach you this. You didn't pick up on this because you heard it somewhere. This was only revealed to you by God the Father. That's the only way that you could have known this. That's the only way you could believe this is been revealed to you by my Father who is in heaven. The revelation of Christ to us is only the woodworks of Jesus Christ. Now, I know we're thinking, like, so we have no responsibility in this? Absolutely not. We are called to make disciples. We are called to preach the gospel. Men were called to lead our families well, to shepherd them. We're called to wash the, our, our wives with the water of the word. We're called to not provoke our children to anger, but teach them the goodness of Jesus Christ. We're called to do all of this. But can we change the hearts of men? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. It's only God above. So, so what do we do then? Well, it's exactly what Jesus did. We put them around it. We allow them to see it, to understand it, to taste it, to touch it. And if your salvation story is anything like mine, that's how it was for me. I, mean, I was a church. I saw it. I experienced it. My parents prayed for me. My parents loved me well. I was around it for a really long time. And the Lord used all that to go, okay, now. 
now I'm going to reveal myself to you. Now it all makes sense to you. But it had to be both and. I just love this quote. Jonathan Edwards' concept puts this concept into two different quotes. First, to take on yourself to work out your own redemption, to work out your own salvation, it is a greater thing than if you would take on to create the world. What he's saying is, if you think you can save yourself, it would be harder to save yourself than just go create the world out of nothing. So you cannot save yourself. Second, though, he says, I am bold to say that the work of God in conversion of one soul is more glorious work of God than the creation of the whole material world. In other words, the great confession, which always follows the great conversion, is a great work of God. Often we'll sing here after the end of the service the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. This is the primary one that God saves sinners, that he reveals himself to people like us. It is not up to us to save ourselves, to redeem ourselves, but it's only through the Father saving us, rescuing us, redeeming us. So why does having the right answer matter? Why does it matter for us to be able to clearly articulate? Why did it matter for Peter to clearly articulate who do people say that I am? Who is Jesus? And we understand this from, and if you've had any VBS experience in your entire life, Jesus saved us from hell. Yes, for sure. I don't want to belittle that. Eternal damnation lies on the line if we don't have this answer right. But for us to just use this as fire insurance is more of the Lord-Savior dichotomy. We, we can't do that. To follow Christ is, is life to the full now. It's abundant life now. Eternal life starts now as we follow Christ. The intimacy that we have, the encouragement that we have, the love that we have, knowing God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit are with us at all times starts now. So it doesn't matter. Yes, hell, that's a massive thing. But I just don't want to scare you away from hell, right? I don't want to build a massive bonfire and say, do you want to spend the rest of your life there? Follow Jesus. Anyone else have that conversion experience? No? I mean, it happens, right? Like, we can have all the fear tactics in the world, but when we start to truly understand the beauty of Jesus Christ, that's all that matters. So who is Jesus? So as we see this idea, Peter gives us, you are the Christ, you are the son of the living God. And we see within the Apostles' Creed, and Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. So, so that's what we understand, really, the Christness of Jesus. What does the title of Christ mean? What does the title of son mean? And what does the title of Lord mean? Right, so that, that's what we want to understand. So, so let me just say, I'm going to go pretty quick. Right? I mean, I'm basically teaching a crash course on Christology now in the next 10 minutes, so we're going to move pretty quick. But over the next six weeks, we're going to be diving back into these topics. We're going to work to understand how all of these things really flesh out. And so for us, Jesus is Christ, his only son, our Lord. Maybe another way to say it is Jesus is the saving triune king. Right? That Jesus is Christ, his only son, our Lord, or Jesus is the saving triune king. So first, let us look at Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is 
to Christ. And I know, I don't mean to make a joke of this, but uh, you kind of hear this, especially when I was in youth ministry and little kids, like uh, Christ was Jesus' last name, right? Like that's just what you thought. Like you walk into the locker room, you see all the things and like, oh, there's Jesus' jersey. Well, how do you know? It says Christ. His number's three. Why do you think that is? Maybe it's the Trinity. That's crazy, right? Like that's just kind of what we naturally go to is that Jesus Christ is his last name, but but what we're going to see is this is way much more than that. So this idea, Christos, comes from the root word meaning anoint. So there, there's three words that are really synonymous within the definition of Christ. You've got Christ, you've got the anointed one, and then you also have the Messiah. right? So all those three are really synonyms. They all kind of mean the same thing. That Originally referring to physical anointing was this word uh, anoint. The term took on a metaphorical significance as one chosen and appointed by God to be his instrument. So we see that Jesus was set apart, was anointed to do the will of God. So if Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, what was he anointed? What was he set apart to do? Well, to redeem us, to redeem the people of God to do what we could never do on our own, which is to save ourselves from our sins. As Edward says, it's easier to create the world than to save yourself from your sins. So, so we are the anointed, or he is the anointed one. Christ is not a surname, but it is a title. Jesus Christ is not merely a name, it is a theological proposition. It is the claim that all the promises given to Israel are fulfilled in this one incarnate Man, Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Anointed One, Jesus the Savior. This is this idea of Jesus the Christ. Now again, if we look at this idea of liar, lunatic, Lord, if Jesus wasn't the Christ, wasn't the Anointed One, wasn't the Messiah, wasn't the Savior, then why would he sit in front of Pontius Pilate? I'm not trying to get ahead of ourselves. Why would he sit in front of the Jewish councils? Because this is ultimately what had him killed, right? This messianic, I am the Messiah, you are the one, you claim that you can take sins away. This is ultimately what had Jesus murdered. Why would he sit in front of them and not say that that was a lie? I mean, we can all lie for a long time, but when your death is on the line, when, when, when death is knocking on the door, you're probably going to tell the truth. But this one truth is what Jesus, what had Jesus killed. So when you start to work through, I, I think my favorite example of the, the Messiah-ness, the, the Christ-ness, the anointed one of Christ, uh, really come, culminates in the book of Mark. I think he just does a great job of working through this in his entire way. So you see Mark opening up, identifying his volume as the beginning of the good news of Jesus the Messiah. So Mark's point in writing the book of Mark, the gospel of Mark, is to prove to us the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. And he works all the way up to Mark ten forty five, where he shows that, that Christ didn't come to serve, or to be served, but to serve. So the Messiah, the anointed one, is not here to wear the crown, to wear the magic robe. He's here to serve the least of these. He's here to, for a bigger purpose. And really, this culminates into this exact story that we see in Mark 8, where Peter confesses that you are the Christ, you are the Messiah. And from that point on, right, so they're thinking, you're the Christ, you're the anointed one, you're the Savior, you're the Messiah, we're about to overthrow Rome. Like, this is about to go down. 
Like, let's sharpen up the swords. Let's get the white horses. Let's roll in there. The Christ has come. We're going to win everything. So the book of Mark shows that Jesus, after this point of this conversation with Peter, spends the entirety of his time going, no, 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 guys, I'm here to suffer. Like, I'm, I'm here to die. I've been anointed not to rule and reign on this earth, but to rule and reign in the kingdom forever. And here's how this takes place. I've got to go to the cross. I've got to suffer. I've got to die. And I've got to be resurrected. So the gospel writers, the apostle, all the other Christian authorities share this conviction that Jesus was the Messiah. He was the final divine deliverance that had been promised throughout the entirety of the Old Testament. He is the Messiah. He is the anointed one, the Christ but it looks way different for them than what they're expecting. And we have to ask ourselves the same question. Does Christ's role in our life look way different than what we were expecting? The, the idea of Jesus the Christ, the Savior, the, the conqueror of all, but why am I still struggling through this and this and this? If you could save, if you could rescue, if you could ransom, but why can't you get my family out of this situation that we're in? So we start to, just as the early disciples do, impart our thoughts of what Jesus should be instead of sitting under the feet of Jesus and understanding who he is. So first we see Jesus as the Christ. Second we see within the creed and within Peter's confession that Jesus is the Son. Now Dylan covered the Trinity last week. We're going to be covering the Trinity really throughout this entire Apostles' Creed series. It's just impossible to not. But but let me draw a few things here just to make sure we're all on the same page. When Scripture says Jesus is the Son of God, there's a few things that we first have to understand what that doesn't mean, right? Like what does this not mean? The first we have to see, and, and we already talked about this, that Jesus is not created. And Dylan rightly pointed last week to John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So Jesus was not a created being that came out of God the Father, right, so that he can rule and reign. He has always been, he will always be, he is part of the triune trinity forever and always. And second, this idea of sonship cannot be conveyed that Jesus is the lesser, right? Like God the Father is up here, Jesus is just like, the idiot son, right? That, ooh, I don't want to, that, I mean, you could take that and totally make me a her, heretical blasphemer right there. Don't cut that quote out, right? But, but that's what a lot of us think, right? Like, I mean, God the Father is like junior league, and then God the Spirit, I mean, who, who knows what he does, right? Like, we don't really need him. We really just need God the Father. And a lot of us have grown up in that church. I mean, w- when you look at all the denominations, especially in America, here's what we see. We see churches that worship God the Father, big high church, suit and tie, everything there, but really minimize the work of Jesus and minimize the work of the Spirit. Or you have this middle ground that like, man, Jesus is everything. The red letter Christians that, that you don't have to really worry about God, you don't really have to worry about the Spirit, just Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And then over here you have the, uh, the more Pentecostal, charismatic, charismatic, I mean, kind of say, I mean, sometimes, no offense, just some of the crazies, right? Like, just the Holy Spirit, like, we don't really need Scripture, we don't really need Jesus, we don't really need God. I've got the Spirit, I am the authority, God told me, so then this is canonization true. No, this is canonization truth, that's just your opinion, right? So, so we see kind of these three paradigms taking place 
all within the local church here. And we have to understand that Jesus is not lesser. The Holy Spirit is not lesser. They're all one triune God together. And we see this clearly, John 17, where, where Jesus, the high priestly prayer, there's a mutual knowledge, a mutual love, a mutual glorification between God the Father and God the Son. They are three in one. So what does the sonship mean? And we see this word, if, if you grew up in VBS memorizing John 3.16, this is the word that you know, begotten. Begotten, right? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, right? So we understand this word, but what does this word really mean? And we see single of its kind only. So, so begotten does not mean created or main, made, but it's the eternal procession of God, God sending Jesus. It's the only one of his kind. And so we see this title, son of man, son of God, and, and in this we see the dichotomy of who Jesus is. Son, fully man. God, fully God. So when God's walking this planet, he did not lay down his divinity. He is 100% fully God, as son of God. But he's also 100% fully man. So as we studied in Hebrews, he is an empathetic high priest. He's gone through everything that we'll ever go through. He understands hurt. He understands temptation. He understands pain. Why? Because he's a son. He's man, 100% man, 100% God. And the Nicene Creed really kind of fleshes this out in a really helpful way. Here's what it says. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all words, all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven. See, often this word begotten, begotten, begotten. He's the only of onlys. And that's one way to view the word begotten. He's the only of onlys. He's God's only son, but he's his only, only son in that he wasn't created, he wasn't made, but he's eternally triune God with him. So we see this idea of son of God is just wrestling here with the Trinity. So flip with me real quick to Hebrews 1. I know we're teaching through Hebrews and but, I mean, this just sums all this up together. I just want to read it really fast because I know our time is running short and my sweat is dripping fast. Anyone else? Yeah, about to take these pants off. Hebrews 1. That's when I need that big old wood pulpit. No one would ever know. They're going to know. How would they know? Some of y'all just got that. I don't have a TikTok, but I see him every now and then. And they're going to know. All right, Hebrews 1. But seriously, can someone do something about this? Is, anyone, is everyone burning? No, is it just me? Just me. All right. Take a mushroom. Here we go. <laughs> Hebrews 1, 1 through 4. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he spoke to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. Right? So we see this. He's the heir of all things. He's also created the world with him. He's not lesser than. He's not a created being. He was there when everything was created. Verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Exact imprint. 
God the Son, God the Father, exact imprint, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become more superior to the angels as the name as he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So we see just the supremacy of Christ as son. He's not lesser than, he's not JV, he is God the Son. And lastly, we see this, we see this really in Romans 8 pushes this idea, but Jesus as our Lord. So Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. Now just straight out of the gate, this idea of lordship does not translate here. Right? We, we, we're just in a totally different time. Total, we live in a democracy. This idea of lordship does not translate. But, but if there's one I think we really need to nail down, I think it's this one. I think we're all there with eternity. We might need some more education to understand. We're definitely all there with the Savior, the Messiah, the Christ. But this idea of Jesus as Lord, Jesus as King, I just want us to sit and marvel under. So among the many titles attributed to Jesus, none is more frequent than that of Lord. It appears 700 times in the New Testament. Jesus is Lord. That word 700 times within the New Testament. So it's of most important. So Lord, master, the one who has the power. Right? So this idea Caesar is Lord, they're saying this because who had more power than Caesar? But this idea, I mean, if we lived in more of a monarchy, that the king or the queen, who has more authority? The king or queen, they can do whatever they want, say whatever they want, believe whatever they want, and influence it throughout their kingdom, and who's going to argue with them? But, but for us, we live in this democracy, right? I mean, the, the things that we can open up our phone and tweet about the president or some elected officials is ridiculous compared to this idea of lordship or kingship. I mean, we understand this. We, we see the paranoid idea that Herod, when Jesus was born, had all these boys killed, right? Because he was trying to go after, why? Because his authority was tackled. Herod, if there was more than three or four people gathered together just having a conversation, he would have you killed because he didn't want to overthrow the emperor, right? So, so we see this idea throughout Scripture, the lordship, the kingship, was such this massive idea. So for them to say that Jesus is Lord is literally in the pinnacle of Caesarea Philippi saying, forget Rome, forget the guys that can have us murdered, this guy is Lord, this guy is king, this guy is the master. And we, we're going to bow down and submit everything to him. So this word, uh, uh, we talked about this, and just make sure that we're all on the same page. So, so yes, the Old Testament is written in Hebrew, but in this time, this biblical time is this Greco-Roman time. So by this time, they had translated the Old Testament into Greek. This is what we call the Septuagint, right? So when we talk about the same words, the same language being used in the New Testament and Old Testament, technically in our Bibles, that's not the case. But for them in this day, it was the case. And so we see within the Old Testament, this word Lord appears over 9,000 times. So these disciples, these apostles, this early church that knew the Septuagint, that knew the Old Testament, knew that God the Father had the title of Lord, and it was used 9,000 times. So then the New Testament rolls around and they start calling Jesus Lord. They knew what they were saying. 
They knew the title that they were giving, that he is God. So not only was he God, was he Lord, but Caesar wasn't Lord anymore. And not only that, all these pagan gods that were running around and being worshipped were no longer gods anymore. 1 Corinthians 8 puts it this way. For there, this is Paul pouring to the church at Corinth. For although there are many so-called gods in heaven and on earth, as indeed there are many gods or many lords, yet there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and from whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things and through whom we exist. So Paul's going, no, no, no. There's not many gods. There's not many lords. There's not many saviors. There's Jesus. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is King. Now, when we start to tie this together, what does this mean for us? We have to look first at church history. What does this mean for them? This, this meant martyrdom. This meant the murder of those professing Jesus as Lord at the hands of the state. This meant a cultural revolution, not bowing down to these temples that were built to recognize the leaders in Rome and saying, that guy's not Lord, Jesus is Lord. That means a cultural of uprising, of upheaval, fighting against the culture of the day, Jesus is Lord, not these guys. There was no, well, you worship your thing, we'll worship our thing. You can call yours Lord, we can call ours Lord. Whatever truth works for you, well, this is the truth that works for me. This is what makes me most happy, but man, you do you, whatever makes you happy. No, Paul said, there, there's no multiple gods, there's no multiple lords, there's one Lord, and his name is King Jesus. If you notice at the branch, we use that word a lot, King Jesus, because Lord is great, and we want to redeem that biblical word, but, but just in our time, I think King makes a, makes a lot of sense, and we see this biblically as well. But king walks into the room, we understand, we've read enough that, man, we all bow down, we all hit our face. And if you try to talk back to the king, you're done. So what does it look like for us to bow down and worship him as Lord, to worship him as king? And, and I'll just, if it doesn't cost you anything, you're not doing it. I mean, can we just be honest? I'm not saying you're going to be martyred. But we cannot worship Jesus as king, Jesus as Lord, and that idea not cost us something, not cost us a preference, not cost us a different way of living. Not cost, it's going to cost us something. It's going to look so counter-culture. The way we spend money is going to be different because it's not ours, it's the king's. The way we treat our wives and kids is going to be different because they're not ours, they're the king's. I, don't, I have to answer to the king for this. The way that we fellowship within the family of the church is going to look different. Why? Because we're all part of the kingdom. It's going to cost us something. And as culture goes, we'll, we'll see what happens in the next 15, 20 years. It, it really might cost us something. But is Jesus Lord? Is Jesus King? So, so as we close, let me just answer those or bring up those four questions we talked about in the beginning. If the creed will help us understand who God is to grow in our knowledge, I just want to ask one question. If Jesus is Christ, our Son, the Lord, not our Son, excuse me, His only Son, our Lord, which of those three do you need to devote some time to studying this week? If we're going to grow in our knowledge, 
What, of what area, what characteristic of Jesus Christ do we want to grow in this week? What can you commit to looking within the scriptures? Is it Christ the Savior, Son, the triune God, or Lord the King? Which one is it? But listen, second, we see that the creed connects us as a family both in the past and in now. The shortest and most universal declaration of Christians throughout history is this one phrase, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. That is what bounds us together for hundreds and thousands of years. This death sentence was what bound us together. So, so if we're going to start talking about what's bound us together, we've got to ask this question. What are we giving up not to earn salvation, but because we've submitted to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, what have we given up in our lives? Let's wrestle with that question. Let's ask ourselves this question. Because if we can answer this honestly, then we have to ask the second question, have I actually submitted to Jesus Christ as Lord? Is he actually the Lord of my life? Is he king over my life? If nothing about me has changed, not my preferences, not my thoughts, not my ideas, not my hopes, not my future, has nothing changed, then the elephant in the room might be that Jesus Christ isn't your Lord. He's just your Savior. He's just a good God that we like. We actually have not submitted to him as our Lord. Third, we see that the creed is going to give us an opportunity to teach, and we need to teach this. We need to teach this, that there's a right way. Proverbs say there's a right way that seems right to man, but in the end it leads to death, leads to destruction. So, so we have this message of hope that, that us submitting to the lordship of Jesus Christ is not a Debbie Downer. But that is where hope is found. That is where peace is found. That is where life is found. So we have this message to teach, to submit to the Lordship of Christ because that is where true freedom is found. That is where hope is found. That is where peace is found. And let us work on teaching this. And lastly, we see that it lets us hold fast to what we believe. One of my favorite hymns of all time, I'm just going to read it in here a second. Take the world and give me Jesus. Have you all heard this? So let me just read this. Take the world, but give me Jesus, sweetest comfort of my soul. With my Savior watching over me, I can sing through billows roll. Take the world, but give me Jesus. Let me view his constant smile. Then throughout this lifelong journey, he will lead me all the while. Take the world, but give me Jesus. Let our hope and affections be on King Jesus and no one else. So what does it really look like when we just fall in love with who Jesus really is? Well, he becomes our affection. He becomes our joy. He becomes our delight. And everything else becomes secondary to him. That's what happens when we understand Jesus as Savior, Jesus as Lord, and Jesus as a triune God. So as we end this time together, I want to do two things. I want to ask you two questions. And I want to read Colossians 1 for us. So as I'm asking the questions, flip over to Colossians 1. When you think about how is the best way to summarize who Christ is, it's, it's Colossians 1 for me. And as, as we're flipping, the questions are simple. Who is Jesus to you? Not what your parents have told you, not what the church has told you, not what the world has told you. Who is Jesus to you? Who is he? 
And the last question is, has that changed the way you live? Because those two have to go hand in hand. Colossians 1, 15 through 23. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven, on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to him all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. So in a moment, we're going to take communion, remembering what Christ did. That he is the Son, that he is the Lord, that he is the Savior the Messiah, that we have no hope apart from Christ and Christ alone. And so we see scripturally that there's two things that have to take place when we talk about communion. First, the scripture would tell us that communion is for the believers. Now this gathering is not limited to believers. We don't have a Christian metal detector that when you walk in, if you're not a true Christian, it goes off and we ask you to leave. That's not what takes place here. All is welcome, but in this time, scripture would say communion is for the baptized believers. So we're going to participate in that to remember Jesus the Savior, what he's done for us. But Scripture would also tell us that we should not take communion in an unhealthy manner, meaning we have to repent of our sins. That we have to spend a few moments confessing our sins to Christ. Spend a few minutes remembering the sins that we have and laying them before the cross of Jesus Christ because he is our Savior, the triune King. And he's faithful to forgive us. So what I want us to do is just spend a few moments in repentance. I want us to ask, spend a few moments just asking the Spirit to speak to us this morning. Do we actually view Jesus as a Savior, as a triune God, and as the King, as the Lord? And if not, what's hindering us from that? We're all around. Elders, will you just raise your hand real quick? All of our elders, we, any of us would love to talk to you. Gosh, any, anybody around would love to talk to you. I'll be in the back. We'll all be around the back. But we have to answer this question, church. Who is Jesus? And, and if you can't answer truly the Savior, the Christ, the triune Lord God, our King, why not? What's holding us back from that? Because nothing is sweeter than Christ on the cross. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this time. Thank you so much for your words. You've revealed to us who you are and what you've done to purchase many sons and daughters for your